Good morning, friends. Welcome to worship on this 4th of July weekend. Let's stand together here as we worship in the Lord's house. Let's get our hands together. my mic. Happy 4th of July weekend. My name is McLean Murphy and I'm on the staff in the session and we're so glad that you would join us on this holiday weekend whether you're celebrating today with friends and family or tomorrow. Maybe you've got a cookout or going to the beach. I see lots of red, white, and blue. Y'all look good this morning. I really think though that this weekend as we think about our freedom that we have in America is such a picture for us of the freedom that we have in Jesus. So I would just encourage you as you celebrate, as you think about this great nation that we live in, that it would just be kind of a reflection of an even greater freedom that we have in Jesus. That when we were 
dead in our sin, when we were in a state of rebellion, when we were broken, when we were at the bottom, at that moment, God sent his son Jesus to die for us on the cross. Not once we had cleaned it up, not once we had gotten our act together, not when we tried to earn it. No, it's when we were at our lowest that Jesus came to die for us, that he bought our freedom with his life. And that because of that, we sit in this room and we worship and we serve a big, powerful, loving God who loves us so much and gives us freedom and new life. That's who we serve and that's who we worship this morning. If you're new, we're so glad that you're here. We would love to meet you. We would love to get to know you. And the best way to do that is you can scan this QR code, go to our website, fill out a connect card. You can also grab one in the welcome tent and fill it out and put it in the generosity box in the back. That way we can just get to know you better. Please pray with me. God, we're so thankful that when we were lost, that when we were broken, God, when we were at our lowest state, that in that moment you decided I'm going to rescue her. I'm going to rescue him. That you came after us by sending your son Jesus to die for us. You love us that much, God. It's nothing we did. It's nothing that we earned. God, it's from your great, awesome love. And so because of that, we worship you and we thank you. God, we have people on our hearts and minds who um, are a part of this family of faith that we want to bring before you and pray for. God, we pray for William Billig's mom, Barbara, who's in the hospital, and we just pray, God, for her healing and for your grace over this family. Lord, we also pray for Dan Carlson, who came home from the hospital yesterday, and we thank you, God, that he's improving from a potential case of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Lord, I know that this has just been a really scary week for that family. So, God, we pray for complete healing over Dan, and we pray for your mercy over Aaron, and uh, just as they try to navigate next steps. Lord, we also pray for Charlie Mason and Tori Kirkland and the loss of their precious grandmother. We just thank you for her life and her many wonderful years here on earth and just pray that you would surround this family. And we also pray, God, for Sally Glisson and the loss of her father um, in his 90s, an incredible man. And just thank you, God, for, for this life that he had here on earth. And um, Jesus, we thank you for um, that you are with these people now. God, we give you this morning, we give you our hearts, and we give you our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. And for those of you online, we want to make sure that you have a moment to prepare for communion. So this is a great chance for you to go and get ready, grab juice, coffee, whatever you have, cookies, crackers. It'll all work just perfectly. I want you all to know that it's this incredible mystery of God that when God's generosity gets a hold of us, it actually transforms us. It transforms us as individuals, as a church. And the Apostle Paul helps us understand that when he said, don't look only out for the interests of yourself, but for the interests of others. And then he went on to say, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That means that every time you're generous, a change takes place in your heart. Every time you give, your heart moves closer to God. You become more loving. You become more like him. So if you choose to give this morning using the generosity box in the back of the room or one of these five platforms, understand that God is at work. And somehow, when we give, we're not only sharing the love of Jesus, we're becoming more like him. Thank you for sharing your love so generously with this community and the world. Friends, let's continue to worship together. on this journey I get lost in my mistakes what looks to me like weakness is a canvas for your strength my story isn't over my story's just begun failure won't define me cause that's what my father does 
First Presbyterian Church beginning next Sunday will be at the movies. We're going to turn this place into a semi-movie theater. You're going to smell and eat popcorn. There'll be cold drinks. We'll have candy. And we're going to start using the movie Top Gun, the original, in 1986. By the way, today, July 3rd, is Tom Cruise's 60th birthday. Not that you care. Anyhow, next Sunday right here. And here's why we're doing it. We're doing it because, A, we can we're doing it B because it will be fun and C that means that you can easily invite your friends because we want more people to know about the goodness of Jesus and we're going to have fun talking about it in four movies we're only telling you the first one it's Top Gun we're doing it next Sunday and wait there's more next Sunday also this thing is hot excuse me Kathy if you'll take those shades how you like my aviators, huh? <laughs> we're going to reveal next Sunday what we're doing over here. After hundreds of hours of work, faithful work, alignment, all this great energy that's been put into it from leaders, 50 or 60 people led by great folks, and I'm not going to go through all their names today. Here's what's going to happen. 
either this coming week or early next week, the plans are getting submitted, but we're going to show you next Sunday what's going to happen. We're going to have a 3D fly around. We're going to have blueprints. We're going to have a budget. We're going to have a timeline. We're going to show you what's happening on the property, when we hope to break ground, when we hope it will be finished, all that kind of stuff. Sound good? Huh? Are you fired up? So, so you can do this. You can come to the church with friends and it'll be fun, and they're going to be excited about what we're doing, as well as having fun watching this movie and letting it, letting it help us understand some really good things. Oh, by the way, silly boy, how do I get from all of that to Esther? Well, here's how. This journey we've been on as a church, man, it's been awesome. Here's what it's been. It's been alignment. There's been no siloing or pigeonholing. There's no, nobody's gone and been territorial. And people have trusted each other. And I've said repeatedly, going through all of this journey where we've known we were trusting God, but we weren't real sure how it was going to work out. And we're still not. Because once we get the building built, then what's, what's really important is how are we going to reach people? And what are we going to do to help people come to know the love that we're hearing about already in the music? And Kathy's introduction to giving and in McLean's introduction, how are people going to know it's because we're going to invite them? And in the real relationships that are just down to earth, that's how we're going to do it because that's what we're about, real relationships, real transformation. But think about what we've been looking at with Esther, some uncertainty. Is God there? And we haven't doubted that. But there, we, we've had not a blueprint, but we've had a compass and a roadmap. That's the way we've been navigating and we've grown closer together because of it. We've learned to trust and love God more because of it. And those are the outcomes we really want. We're going to have a great building. We're going to have a great, huge, gigantic lobby between our sanctuary and this room. And then we're going to have this room with kids going nuts. But what really matters is people's lives changing. And that's where we have to trust God because there's nothing certain about that. God is not hidden to us, but God was hidden in the lives of these people of Israel way back and we're learning from them we're learning something really important today i want to say it this way i want to talk about how it is that we can see into the future when god appears not to be present at all and we're going to it's a tweetable thing and it goes like this we're going to say hope is a habit that's learned in the dark so we've been asking is God present in the life of the people of Israel? And so I want you to just look at this and think about it. If you're, if you're an is a person who's from the nation of Israel and you're in exile, is God there? Where are you, God? I would, it wouldn't bother me one bit if you got your phone out and took a picture of that and you started meditating on it. I'm going to repeat it again towards the end of the sermon so you'll get a chance to do it again. But, but here, here, hope is what these people and what you and I have to decide we're going to live with and live upon. And let me tell you what hope isn't. Hope, when we talk about it in a Christian conversation, is not optimism. That's not what hope is. In the Bible, in the New Testament, hope is the certainty that we have that attaches us to God and to God's future. And it's the anchor on which we attach our lives and it's the resurrection of Jesus when we talk about hope we're talking about we have a certainty objective certainty that God is alive and real why because that cross is empty that's what we mean when we say hope but when God is hidden in our lives when we can't sense him when stuff is really difficult really hard really bad and for these people we're reading about this is before Jesus it's the same God, but it's before God finished what God needed to finish. These people didn't know that there was going to be a death and resurrection. They didn't know there was a crucifixion coming. But see, God made a promise, and we'll, we'll dive back into the book of Esther this way. God made a promise to the people but through a person named Abraham long before the Israelites became a big nation. He said to Abraham, Abe, I've picked you random. It's not anything about you. I just picked you. And I'm going to make a big family out of you. And out of your big family, I'm going to bless you. And then your big family, because it's blessed, is going to go and bless the entire planet. In other words, God is saying, Abraham, I'm going to have a love covenant with you. And we're going to love each other. And your life is going to prosper because your relationship with me is going to be awesome. 
And then what's going to happen is you're going to tell every person on the world in the planet about it. And everybody on the planet is going to enjoy a covenant love relationship with me. That's what we're going to do, Abraham. And God will not be thwarted, he says to Abraham. And yet look what's happened. Here we are about, four, about 70 to 100 years before what's happening in the book of Esther. The devastatingly catastrophic event in the history of Israel has happened. Their entire city, Jerusalem, completely destroyed by the superpower, which is in modern-day Iran, Iraq, then known as the Babylonians. Completely destroyed. Burn it down. If Hitler had won, he comes across the Atlantic, goes straight to D.C., demolishes it, but that's not all. He exiles everyone but the poor people back to Germany, to Berlin. That's what they're living in long way from home and every all of their religious identity their ethnic identity their political identity destroyed and in the book of esther god is never mentioned not one time so we've been saying is god sovereign is god powerful providential we said because god doesn't seem to be around so these jewish people particularly esther who is the queen and mordecai who is her uncle They're leading the way to trust God. Am I getting it right? (laughs) They're leading the way to understand how to trust God, though they never mention God, and it just looks like they're doing their best to stay faithful. That's what we have here. So Mordecai, an uncle, Esther, she's now the queen. She won a beauty contest, married to King Xerxes, who is brutal, doesn't care, about these Jewish people. What he cares about is making his army strong enough that he can go west and conquer Greece. It's the only thing he cares about. He loves wine, and he makes bad decisions when he's been drinking too much wine. So I've been calling him a brutal, drunken idiot. And today is the last day we get to see the brutal, drunken idiot. But that's who he is. And then the fourth character, who is now deceased, is Haman. Those of you who have been with us, every time we say Haman's name, people boo and stomp their feet. So the fourth character is Haman. Yeah, and Haman has suffered the consequences of his ego, his insecurity, his pride, and his vitriolic hatred of the Jewish people. There's a great reversal, and Haman himself is executed on the gallows he was planning to execute Mordecai. So what we have is the following. We have this great people who are God's people living under the threat of an edict that the king signed in a drunken stupor that allowed Haman to build an army to to annihilate the Jews. And Haman funded the effort. Now let me make you understand that. Though Haman is dead, the edict will still go in. Because once the king signs an edict, and I'm doing like this because they'd wear a signet ring and stamp the wax. Once the king signs it, you can't undo it. It's irrevocable. And this is the other thing you're wondering, well, why didn't the Jewish people defend themselves? Because the date for the annihilation was set for months away. Well, the reason they didn't defend themselves is because the Persians wouldn't let, the Babylonian Persians wouldn't let them. If anybody who was Jewish was seen gathering arms, they would have been taken out. So they simply have nowhere to go, and they're just wailing, mourning the death that's coming. And that's where we pick it up. A lot of tension in the story. The Jewish people still look to be ready to be facing a sudden uh, an execution. Esther is the queen. Mordecai is rising in the, in the eyes of the king. And now we're going to read about him and see what happens. Here we go. And we're, it's 8, 9, and 10. We're going we're to dance through it. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman. That was very weak. The the estate of Haman. Very good. So in other words, Haman is dead, and Xerxes, Haman's a wealthy person, and Haman, the king, has given his entire estate to his queen, Esther. You with me? Haman, the arch enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king because Esther had explained their relationship. In other words, the king didn't know until right now that Esther was the niece of Mordecai. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. Mordecai is rising to the position almost of where Haman was before his death. The king takes off the ring, gives it to Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. Esther appointed Mordecai. Esther appointed Mordecai over Haman's estate. So she's now wealthy. And she now has his estate at her disposal. She immediately gives it to her uncle. 
Then Esther spoke again to the king, falling at his feet, begging with tears to counter the evil of Haman, the Agagite. I'm going to pause and say something about Agagite. You with me? When God rescued the Jewish people from exile and they got back to their promised land, the people that met them and tried to kill them were Agagites. Haman is just replaying an old tape. That's why we get told by the author that of his lineage. So the Haggai revoked the plan that he had plotted against the Jews. The king extended his gold scepter to Esther. That means she's allowed to come into his presence. She got to her feet and stood before the king. She said, if it please the king, whenever you're talking to a king, let me just, if, this is at no extra charge this morning. Whenever you talk to a king, this is how you talk to a king. Okay, you with me? If it please the king, and he regards me with favor and thinks this is right, and if he has any affection for me at all, let's see the king, you already got the king right here. You see? Let an order be written that cancels the bulletins authorizing the plan of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, to annihilate the Jews and all the prophets. So in other words, Esther saying, Mr. King, husband king, cancel that edict. But he can't, because when a king says something is law, it's law. That's the way it works. How can I stand to see this catastrophe wipe out my people, says Esther? How can I bear to stand by and watch the massacre of my own relatives? So King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I've given Haman's estate to Esther. And he's been hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. So go ahead and watch this turn. It's a pretty good move politically. Go ahead and write whatever you want to on behalf of the Jews and then seal it with the signet ring. And again, we're reminded an order written in the king's name and sealed with the signet ring is irrevocable. So here's what Mordecai's order was that the king said, sign it for me. The king's order authorized the Jews in every city, what? To arm and defend themselves. So the edict to attack the Jews is in place, but now also they're being given permission to prepare for battle. It's a brutal culture. So all of the violence that, you're, that I'm going to read in just a second, all this brutality, let me ask you to be careful and not look down our modern noses at this as if somehow we're morally superior. Friends, I, we're not. In this country, you can't kill somebody without facing the, the effects. But lots of places in the world today, people are being annihilated. They're just being slaughtered. Lots, of, lots and lots of places. We slaughter each other in this country with words. Outrage of the day. Social media. We attack people. So this is more violent than that, yes. But please don't think we would never do this in the modern world. There's nothing about the modern world that's any less violent. So as we see this violence, and it's, it's atrocious, I want you to realize this is real, and it's still real, 2,500 years ago and right now. So the king authorized Jews in every city to arm and defend themselves to the death, killing anyone who threatened them or their women and children and confiscating for themselves anything owned by their enemies. Catch that phrase. When you, take, when you kill somebody, you get to take their stuff. They call it plunder. Okay? So the order said you can, you can defend yourselves, you can kill the people who want to kill you, and you can plunder their gold, their cat, their animals, whatever, their wine, their grain. You can take it with you. The day set for all for this in all King Xerxes' provinces was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. I believe that would translate for us today to mid-March. Okay, so however far ahead of that it was, but that's, the day was set. The order was posted in public places, that is the orders that Jewish people could defend themselves in public places in each province, so everyone could read it, authorizing the Jews to be prepared on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. Mordecai walked out of the king's presence wearing a royal robe. A Jewish man has now risen to be wealthy, having been given the estate of one of the wealthiest and number two in the country. And he's Jewish, 
and he sits at the right hand of the king, a royal robe of violet and white, a huge gold crown, and a purple cape of fine linen. The city of Susa, that is the capital city, with Jewish people left and right all over, explodes with joy. They were mourning and grieving what was going to be their certain death. Now they're exploding with joy. They have to go fight, but at least they can defend themselves. Jews, it was all good times and laughter. They celebrated. They were honored. It was that way all over the country in every province and every city when the king's bulletin was posted. The Jews took to the streets in celebration, cheering and feasting. Finally, they get a break. Not only that, but many non-Jews became Jews. Wow. These people were inviting other people. Now it's dangerous not to be a Jew. We're getting a little spoiler alert here. Watch what happens next. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, that is the day that all this is supposed to happen, the king's order came into effect. This was the very day that the enemies of the Jews had planned to overpower them. But the tables were now turned. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. So here comes the, the, the coup. So the Jews finished off all their enemies with the sword, slaughtering them right and left. As they did, they, as, and, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. I told you it was violent. I'm going to pause. I, this, is, this is a spontaneous thing I'm saying now to you because I just want us to remember. Kathy has a colleague that leads Young Life in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And he does, he does what Young Life does. He helps teenagers discover and walk with Jesus. And one of the young men, the whole, the whole world watch, executed on the beach of North Africa. This is several years ago. It's still going on, my friends. This is a 22-year-old man. And they put uniforms on them, the, the terrorists did, the Islamists, and they, 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 ex, they beheaded all of them. A follower of Jesus, beheaded. Violent world, 2019 not something that happened 2,500 years ago. So back to sitting into this violence and not liking it, but let it be real because it still is. And you and I are agents of peace and justice, not of this horror. But the people had to defend themselves. Think about the Revolutionary War that we're celebrating today. It was, it was not pleasant. But we gave our lives in order to be free people. And that's what it takes sometimes. The Jews finish off their enemies with swords, slaughtering them left and right as they did please, and they were pleased to those who hated them. In the palace complex of Susa, the Jews massacred 500 men. I don't want you to boo Haman this time. They also killed the 10 sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the arch enemy of the Jews. And now for some reason, the author of the book of Esther gives us Haman's 10 sons' names. So here they come, and you can see them. Parshandatha, Aspatha, Parmashta, Paratha, Aradatha, Vaisatha, Aridai, Arisai, Dalphon, Adalia. Ten sons. Remember I said they were given in the edict the chance to take plunder? Look carefully at what happens next. But they, that is the Jews, took no plunder. It happens, it gets said three times. Let me tell you why it says it three times. It's because Jews were told by God never to take plunder. And the reason is because God wanted his people to trust him and not ill-gotten gains. In other words, the wealth and riches of someone who you conquer, who knows how they got it, leave it, let it rot. And the people of Israel were remarkably faithful to that, that way of God's dealing. When God had to have people, when there were battles, God would say, no plunder. And they took no plunder. That day when it was all over, the number of those killed in the palace complex was given to the king. The king told Queen Esther, in the palace complex alone here in Susa, the Jews have killed 500 men plus Haman's 10 sons. Think of the killing that must have been done in the rest of the provinces. What else do you want? Now we're thinking maybe he's feeling sorry about it. Uh-uh. Watch what happens. Name it. It's yours. Your wish is my command. He's a brutal guy. He literally doesn't care. Now he doesn't care about his own people. He wants an army to conquer Greece. I, I, I've never been a king. I don't want to be a king. It's not easy. If it pleased the king, Queen Esther responded, give the Jews of Susa permission to extend the terms of the order another day. She wants more then. 
She wants to annihilate those that would have annihilated her. And so she's brave. But I want to invite you to realize that it's ambiguous, this business about trusting God in these great matters. And she's showing signs of moral ambiguity here, and I can't make them go away. They're just there. She wants to kill more people. I understand. If it pleased the queen, give her and, and have the body of, and, don't, and no booing for Haman anymore. Uh, if the Jews of Susa permission to extend the terms of the order another day and have the body of Haman's ten sons hanged in public display on the gallows, whew, the king commanded it. The order was extended. The bodies of Haman's ten sons were publicly hanged. So we've been asking the question. We have more to read, but just let me remind you. Is God present? Is God sovereign? Is God providential? Does God keep his promises? And we can't make this violence that happens when cultures are fighting go away. But somehow, even in that, God is here because God's going to preserve the people of Israel. Why? Because the promise is from Abraham's family through the line of King David, the great king of 700 years prior to this, through his line will come the Messiah. These people must remain. They're, they can't be taken out. God's promise collapses if we don't have the line of David from whom we get the Messiah. It simply will not be the case. God will not be thwarted in their life and in your life and in our life as we go forward to build some new stuff and reach people. God's not going to be thwarted, but sometimes it gets difficult, morally profound. And that's where we are here. I'm not going to try to make all this tension go away because it doesn't. It doesn't go away. But God is sovereign and loving and good. And God will, in the goodness of the cross and resurrection, make his kingdom the reality. And there won't be any of this junk anymore. But only go with this picture, a snapshot in history of people fighting. So, the Jews in Susa went at it again. On the 14th day of Adar, they killed another 300 men in Susa, but they took no plunder. That's, a, again, a sign to you and to me that somehow they're paying attention to what it means to be in a covenant with God. They took no plunder. It was sitting right there. You saw a bunch of cash on the ground. Nobody's around. There's nobody to claim it. You and I would be tempted to take it. God said, leave it. Let it rot. And they did. We're about to finish Esther here. Meanwhile, in the rest of the king's provinces... The Jews had organized and defended themselves. The Jews had organized and defended themselves. Previously been unable to, but the kings or aid let them do it. Freeing themselves from oppression. Oppression. It was real. This is not made up. This is not a story. They were oppressed. The young man who was executed on the beach in North Africa in 2019, oppressed. On the 13th day of the month of Adar, they killed, here it comes, 75,000 of those who hated them. But third time, did not take any plunder. The next day, the 14th, they took it easy and celebrated with food and laughter. The Jews were not executed. Haman wanted to kill them all. That did not happen. Mordecai the Jew goes from being a person hiding his identity to watch what happens. Second in command to King Xerxes, he was popular among the Jews, greatly respected by them. He worked hard for the good of his people. He cared for the peace and the prosperity of his race. So how do we put all this together? I don't know. Here's, here's Paul, the great apostle, trying to help us do it. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean I get what I want because I follow Jesus. That means somehow in the mystery of the moral ambiguity of, the, of, of existence, God's purposes will work towards it all being good and the bad stuff is going to go away. And somehow we in faith trust that God is sovereign, God is providential, God is a promise keeper, and God will make it all right. Even something as complex as our world we live in today, in the, our culture which is convulsing, but through genuine relationships where we really care about each other, we listen humbly to each other, our lives will transform as we give generously in relationship to each other. And that's how we're going to have fun in this community, reaching out to people. That's what we're going to do. But I want to tell you a little bit about me. I left you with the idea, with uh, a, a thing about my family 
And I want you to see how God works together for good. My family and my, a little bit about my childhood and me being a hurt little boy. I'm seven years old and my mom and dad go like this. Well, when I'm 14 and a half, my mom and dad got back together again. And neither of them had had a marriage or, to my knowledge, even any kind of substantial relationship in between. So my mom calls my dad. And my dad had, was living in the shadows of alcohol addiction. But she called him and that woke him up. And he moved from northern Alabama where he lived and where I'd grown up to St. Augustine, Florida. And in the middle of my freshman year of high school, my mom and dad got remarried. Now, I went through second grade through eighth and ninth grades without him. So there was the sting that happened inside. No question about that. And I'm happy to talk about it. It's not easy to talk about, but I will talk about it. So here I am, a ninth grader with a man in my life again. And I have an older brother, two younger brothers and a younger sister. So the five of us have our dad back. And we don't quite know what to do with him. Meanwhile, this is what my mom had been doing. My mom had taken us to church. No, my mom made us go to church. <laughs> And we were Episcopalian, so in order to get out of having to really, I put on one of those robes and I'd be an acolyte, you know, and that was a good way to not have to participate at all because I had a job to do. And I'd sign up as an extra even when I was on duty. At least I didn't have to sit in the pew because <laughs> it was boring. <laughs> God, nothing against Episcopalians. That's a tough sell. <laughs> Go try the 1928 prayer book out one time and see how you like it. Anyhow, so there's my mother, and she's trying. And she did her best, but we didn't talk about faith at home. She took us to church, and I guess she was hoping the church could somehow, and God was at work, but I didn't know it. So I'm 18 years old. I just graduated from high school, and I'm hanging out with these guys who are college students who are doing young life in my high school. And I'm hanging out with them and I'm doing a little young life. I go to a young life camp. At the young life camp, they ask me to do something at the camp. And I'm asking every one of you to do it if you haven't done it. They said, go sit outside by yourself and think about the possibility of inviting your Jesus into your life. In other words, choose to become a Jesus follower. So I did. I said, all right, I'm in. No, just kind of a basic decision. I, I'm in. Now, God had been working on me in a lot of ways, even when I didn't know it when I was 9 and 11 and 12, and then in the young life of my senior year and the young life stuff that I was doing. But I, I decided to be a follower of Jesus. And the people who were influencing me said, well, let's do these kinds of things together. So they said, start being alone in the mornings if you, and read your Bible and use this little book to help you do some thinking about it. And it was a little devotional thing. They gave it to me, so I started doing that. And here's another couple of things I started to do. I started to be a volunteer. So I volunteered serving. I tutored a kid. And this, I, I didn't connect it at the time, but that's what I, I volunteered helping at church with middle school boys. I led a Sunday school class with middle school boys. Woo. And then I was 18, and then I volunteered in Young Life. But, but I started college that fall. Listen to what I did. I went to college, and I told you I was hurt. I was passive-aggressive. And you know who I took it out on? Me. My first term in college, I started out with five classes. They were each three hours. I dropped one, made two Fs, one D, and a C. You do the math, that's a .75 GPA. Who was I trying to hurt? I was trying to hurt my mother and my father, but I ended up just hurting myself. My mom and dad, I was a National Honor Society student, graduated about 10th in my class, made A's, more than B's, bright person. And they looked at me and said, you gotta prove it about college. I was so mad, but didn't know how to express it. So I just went to college and said, watch this, I'll show you. So then I got a 0.75 in my average and it said, oh, what happened is I went to work and just did my thing. I never made another C and never made another D. My outnumbered my B's with A's. That was sort of my game plan. I wasn't going to work hard enough to make all A's. Could have, but that was too hard. But I, out, I outran them. I sort of wanted to be a 3.7 GPA person and did that all the way through grad school and never wanted to make all A's because I wanted to play basketball and golf. So, but the point is, is that I was hurt inside. And here's what happened. Through the volunteering, I began to heal. And by the time I was a junior in college, I thanked my parents. I was grateful because they did help me financially. They said at first, which made me mad, you got to prove it, you're on your own. Go. 
I was furious and obviously just hurt myself. But I worked my way through all that. And the next thing I know, I'm a junior and I woke up and I went, wait a minute, they love me and they're helping me. The between us, I mean, my parents didn't have a bunch of money, but what I couldn't raise, but with work, they made the difference. So I had no debt. I got through college with no debt. My mom and my dad paid the bills that I couldn't pay. And I woke up grateful one day and told them. I was mature enough, 20, 21, to say, I don't think I, at the time, knew how to say I was passive aggressive because I was hurt by you. But what I did say is thank you. God was at work in my life. I didn't know it. God is sovereign. God is a promise keeper. God is providentially making things to work out, work out according to his purpose. And me being a rescued person was a part of God's plan. So I went from being not rescued to rescued, from being lost to being found. To being spirit, from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. And then worked out these human things in my life and continue to work them out now, certainly. The, it's not like everything goes away. But being open and vulnerable and honest and authentic, and it's not an accident that because I was involved in a group of guys talking about life every single week, we met regularly. We call them in first press, we call them life groups. Back then we called them groups. But anyway, we met, we talked, and we had fun, and we served. And we read the Bible and we made fun of each other and we grew and we held each other accountable and we loved each other when we messed up and all these great dynamics. And I began to heal. I had no idea what God was doing. But the next thing you know, at 20 and 21, I wake up a little bit and I'm, I'm grateful. So I go from bitter to grateful. That's absolutely transformational. And it wasn't me alone. It was it was in the context of serving as a volunteer and meeting intentionally with these other peers and being led by people who were intentionally investing in our lives, both in the group and individually. And the next thing you know, I'm a new person because all things do work out in, for God's purposes, for us who surrender and are called and then go and do what God asks us to do. So here's how we're going to think from all of that. Is God sovereign? Yes. Is God providential? Yes. That's the choice you and I have to make. And this table is going to help us make it. You get to vote when it's dark, when God appears hidden, when you can't tell whether God is in your life or not. You, like Mordecai, like Esther, like me and my little run-of-the-mill garden variety divorce, all of us have to decide whether or not we're going to trust God, even when we can't see him, or are we going to go do our own thing and sort of forget that God is around. This table forces you and me to make a decision. And so again, I want to remind you of what the table is about, what the empty cross is about. This comes from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. We've said it in a tweetable way. Hope is a habit that grows in the dark. And so I'm picking the word dark on purpose. Hidden. The book of Esther. God never mentioned. Is God sovereign? Can I trust in him? Can I have hope in him? And we've defined hope as being a certainty about who God is because of the resurrection. It's the anchor for my life today. And look how the author of Hebrews says it. We have this hope that is the certainty of God's good in the world and the resurrection. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. It's firm. It's secure. That's what you're going to hear when you get the bread and the juice this morning. You're going to hear the body of Jesus, our hope, an anchor for our soul. The blood of Jesus, our hope, firm and secure. Those are the words that you're going to have said to you. And what you're being invited to do right now is you are being invited to vote relationally. I'm going to trust you, God, even though there's darkness, even though I can't explain it all, even though I'm mad. Even though it hurts, even though they were wrong, even though I can't even see you, even though there's evidence that you don't, that you don't care, whatever, even in the midst of the violence, gracious God, I'm surrendering to you. That's what I'm going to do with my life. So I'm going to step down to the table and just remind us again of the meaning of these things. I have here bread, here two cups with juice. This is not wine, this is grape juice. And Jesus was there on the night of his betrayal and, ex and arrest. 
he was betrayed and then arrested, God appears distant. He takes a piece of bread and he breaks it. He said, this bread is my body broken for you. This is your hope. It's an anchor for your soul. And he also then at that meal took a cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. It's spilled for you. This cup is your hope. It is firm, this hope is, and it is secure. When you eat this bread, friends, and when you drink this cup, you're saying God is sovereign. God keeps promises. I'm in. Come now, feed on Jesus Christ, your firm hope, the anchor for your soul, secure. Feed on him in faith and trust him in whatever circumstance in your life. Let me pray. Gracious God, we, we trust you. You are our hope. That's not about us, that's about you. It's a certainty, it's the truth. It's the resurrection. Thank you that when we know you're present or when we doubt your presence, either way, we move forward trusting. And so you, sovereign God, providential in all matters of the universe, also in the details of our daily lives like we see in these people in ancient history and like we see in my life like we see for a hundred examples here in this room we didn't even know you were at work but you are and right now that's also true for us as a family of faith at first presbyterian church but also for us as individuals and families as bosses as employees you're at work you're making us over into new people help us gracious god to continue to move forward trusting you when we can't see you and when we can 
the next thing you know, we're going to look up and we realize that you've transformed us. We've made, you've made us more like yourself, which is what your plan was all along anyway. So we, we celebrate today and we sing and we give thanks and we listen and we pray all in the name of the resurrected Jesus who sits on the throne of the universe running everything for his good. Amen. Let's stand together one last time, friends. We worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the